Turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 8. First Corinthians chapter 8, we're going to continue at what we started last week. We were able to get through the first six verses of chapter 8 last week. We will finish the chapter this week. Our title for the sermon this morning is Knowledge and Love Must Work Together. Knowledge and Love Must Work Together. And for you worshipers in training, your key words this morning are love, conscience, and stumble. I want to start by reading the first six verses again, and we're going to make a few comments of introduction to refresh our minds of what we were looking at last week in just an abbreviated form, and then I'll read the the final verses, and then we'll get into them this morning. So let's follow along, if you would, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us there is one God the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. These are the verses that we looked at last week. And as we began to look at them, if you remember, I stated that we're in a section of the book of 1 Corinthians now where Paul is beginning to address uh, issues that the Corinthians themselves are asking about, uh, as you see in verse 1, now concerning food offered to idols. And we will uh, progress through this one particular question through chapters 8, 9, and 10. Uh, and so Paul devotes a, a lengthy portion of his letter to this issue. And as we talked about last week, uh, we, we, we seen that there was a group of Corinthian, a group of people in this church who were claiming to have an uh, an elevated knowledge, an advanced knowledge of, of spiritual matters, sort of a, a Gnostic-type knowledge that they had arrived and that they were participating in things that were causing others to, to, to struggle. That's what we will look at this morning. But, these, uh, but Paul begins by addressing the issue itself by really not disagreeing with what they're saying. And in, in really what he was doing in these first six verses is highlighting the things that they were saying which were really true as they say that we know all of us possess knowledge. And he goes on to say that there is no God but one and that an idol has no real existence. And so Paul here is dealing with this issue from the standpoint first and foremost of saying, yes, in that sense you are right. These things that you are doing necessarily are not sinful. You are right in recognizing uh, that these idols are not real and that there is only one God and one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul begins to deal. He starts out dealing with this issue kind of softly. He agrees with the knowledge that these Corinthians have about the existence of other gods. But as we're going to see later when we get into chapter 10, towards the end of chapter 10, actually in verses 14 through 22, Paul is going to begin to really turn turn it up on them a little bit and say that they, they should not be engaging in this activity because when they go into the temples 
to participate in this, whatever's going on in these festivities that were going on, as we talked about last week, these people that are putting on these festivities are actually participating in demon worship. They are propping up and creating these idols to these false gods. And yes, we know that there is no, this block of wood that they have set up is nothing. And so the things that they offer to that, the uh, example, the meat is, is not tainted by this. But nonetheless, Paul is going to show us that there is demonic activity involved in this. And so he really uh, brings them to the point of saying in chapter 10, you need, you need to be away from that. You stay away from that. It's wrong. Do not engage in this activity. But Paul to here, I mean, we have to ask our question, why didn't he just go to that immediately? Why didn't he just set them straight immediately when he finds out uh, about this, this, this disagreement about uh, food offered to idols? Uh, these Corinthians do have a few things right, as I said, but their knowledge doesn't go far enough. And that's really why Paul is going to not get there to the main point yet. And that's why we have chapter 8. Uh, because the first thing Paul does, instead of bringing them to an understanding there's demonic activity going on and they need to be realizing that, he starts out first by addressing their lack of love in the way that they're going about these things with the people around them. And that's why it's important to know that because... any. It's, it's, it's real easy for us to say, okay, tell me what I can and cannot do. That's what I want to know, God. Just tell me what I can and cannot do, and once I know that, I'm good. It's not that simple as we know. If we live like that, we're becoming moralists. We're becoming a, a people who live by a list of do's and don'ts, and our relationships are going to be very messed up, as is going on right here in chapter 8. And so Paul now is coming from the standpoint, first and foremost, by agreeing with him, yes, you have the knowledge, you have a right understanding that these idols are not real, but nonetheless, you need to realize that that's, that's not good enough. There's more to it than just realizing that. And that's what we're going to look at in the second part of this chapter in verses 7 through 13. Let me read those verses and then we'll begin to go through them one by one. Verse 7, However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple... Will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And so... Last week we looked at this, uh, this idea of knowledge divorced from love, how dangerous that can be. That's what Paul is beginning to deal with them in, in, in the first six verses. But now we're going to see that, that knowledge working through love is really what you want to see. You don't want to get rid of the knowledge. We need knowledge. We need to understand the truths of God's Word. And so we need that, but you need to understand what, what do you do with that knowledge. And so... Knowledge working through love is what we're looking for uh, today. They must work together. And so the first thing we want to look at of why it must work together, verses 7 through 8, is because we need to be aware that there are people with weak consciences. 
Paul says there, however, not all possess this knowledge. He starts off with a very strong adversative, however, pointing back to verse 1 where he says that where these people, and, and if you have the ESV, you see that there are quotation marks when he says all of us, all these people are saying all of us possess this knowledge. All of us know that there are no, there is only one God, that all of these other so-called gods and lords are not real. They think that everybody knows that, but Paul is setting them straight and says, no, no, no. It's not that simple. Not all of us, not all possess this knowledge. Paul here raises an issue that some of the Corinthians were ignoring. Not all possess the knowledge. Now, who is he talking about? Who are the people who don't, who, who don't possess this, who are not possessing this proper knowledge? Well, if we look down in verse 11, he'll tell us, And so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. This is his brother. This is a brother in Christ, a fellow Christian who does not have this knowledge. And so um, that not every believer in Corinth, as Paul is going to be explaining, had full knowledge of the doctrines of God, Christ, and creation, which Paul just spoke on. Now that raises a question. If they are, bro- if they are brothers, if they are Christians, shouldn't they know better? Shouldn't they know this stuff? Shouldn't they know that an idol is nothing and that there is only one God? And the answer is yes, they do know this intellectually because, uh, because as Paul lays out in the very beginning of this letter, he talks about how they were sanctified, how they were set apart. And so these people are Christians, but yet what they know intellectually has not gone down into their experiential part of their knowledge yet. They don't, they, they're struggling in how to live in that knowledge and how to work that out. Uh, Romans chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. And I'm going to be reading a lot of chapters from Romans 14 because this is a parallel chapter to this chapter 8 and it, and it sheds a lot more light on this issue. And so verses 1 and 2 of Romans 14 says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. And so this was another issue that was similar that was going on in the Roman church where they were having a disagreement over what they should eat. And so you might say, well, this is just seems so like such a silly issue. This seems like they should know better than this. It's not that simple because Paul says that not all of them possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak and defiled. And so that begins to shed the light on why they're struggling with this because these people remember, now this is, you have to realize that this is Gentiles dealing with Gentiles. You know, this is not Jews here because Jews would have absolutely no problems with, they would, there was no way they would be, uh, tempted to go into a, a to an idol's temple or, and to participate in any of these things. So these are talking about the Corinthian people who had been, who had been living in that city all their life and now they've been converted through the preaching of the Apostle Paul and they've come to faith in Christ. They've come to realize that God is the one true God, but yet because of their former life, because they had grown up, and you remember I explained last week about what, what life was like in Corinth with all of these temple sacrifices going on and all these things, these festivities going on week after week after week, and, no, and every single person in that, in that city at one point or one time would have probably been a participate, participant in one of these activities. And so Paul is saying that some of these people, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And so what he's saying here is that if, if, you, sit, if you take this person who was, who, was in, who, who was in this 
type of activity before and they've come out of it, they're realizing, they're recognizing this is wrong. We do not worship false gods. We do not sacrifice to false gods. But nonetheless, if we take him in there and sit him down in the middle of that, we realize that that's going to be a struggle for him. It's going to remind him of his former life and the struggles with, and remind him of his, the sin that he was involved in and the false worship that was going on. And so, Paul is saying that if he sits down, this weak person, weak brother sits down and participates, if he eats, he's going to be reminded that I'm actually participating in idol worship now. I'm participating in this false worship that I was a part of so far in my past. And so they say, he says, because of this, their conscience being weak is defiled. So let's, let's uh, define a few terms here so that we understand what he means. Paul says their conscience being weak. What is your conscience? Well, the conscience is that sort of that, try to put it in layman's terms, that, that inner voice that we have. It's not, you know, it's not the, 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 the good angel on one shoulder and the bad angel on the other one. I mean, you, that's, that's kind of a cute way to look at it. But nonetheless, it's this, this, this innate knowledge that we have in our mind of what's good and bad. And because, and because of this, this is why, you know, God, it says that God, uh, we are all created in the image of God, and so we all understand God's laws inherently. They're written in our, uh, on our consciences, and so these are the things that tell us what is right and wrong. Now, it, it can, your conscience is not your final guide, like Jiminy Cricket is wrong when he says, let your conscience be your guide. You know, it cannot be our final guide because our conscience can be misinformed. It can lead us in the wrong direction. A conscience is only like a computer. It's only as good as what you program it with. And so it's that voice, it's that thing in us, in our side, that in our in our mind that says you're that that brings guilt upon us, or either or does not bring guilt. And so that's what our conscience is doing. And he says his conscience being weak. What does it mean to have a weak conscience, or to be a weak brother? I don't want to read Romans. Or I just read Romans fourteen one and two. And he says, as for the one who is weak in faith. Welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weaker person, weak person, eats only vegetables. Who is the weak brother? He, uh, Paul calls him weak in faith. It doesn't mean weak in saving faith. Saving faith has no degree. It's either there or it's not. When you put your faith in Christ, He is He converts you and brings you and justifies you and brings you into His family. It does not grow. It does not digress. It is it is there. And so he's not talking about weak and saving faith. Uh, to give a good definition of, of what a weak Christian is, it's a person who is weak in faith, believe that if they engage in a neutral activity or a thing, a non-moral issue, they will commit sin. This whole thing that we're going to be looking at over the next several weeks as we go through this, as Paul is dealing with here in chapter 8, is not talking about things like adultery or sexual immorality, the things that he had already talked about in chapter 6. Those things are clearly sinful. They are out of bounds. They are non-negotiables. We don't have room to disagree over those things. God has spoken. Thus saith the Lord. That is sin. And so that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about this issue where there is no thus saith the Lord, where it's sort of one of these gray areas that we talk about. And this, as Paul is talking about, they're dealing with food offered to idols. Some people believe it's okay, and Paul agrees with them, yes, an idol is nothing. Eating this food is not really going to taint you. It's not really going to bother you in and of itself because the meat is just meat. It's not, it's not evil or good. It's, neut- it's a neutral thing. And so 
this is the issues that we're dealing with. So this weak Christian, the person, and I know that, you know, when it sounds like that, it sounds like, well, he's just, he's lacking. And he's, and in some ways, we are. And, and all of us have, have these weak tendencies, no doubt. But we have to realize that it doesn't necessarily mean we're immature. That's a key point that we need to see today. As a weak person, a person who struggles in some areas doesn't necessarily mean they're immature. Some people uh, have been walking with the Lord and are greatly matured in the Lord for many, many years, and there are some things that are clearly just out of bounds for them, and that's okay. But we need to realize that they, that they do exist, and they are weak in faith. They believe that if they engage in a neutral activity or a thing, they will commit sin. And so who is the strong Christian? Well, it doesn't really mention him by name in, uh, in really in chapter 8 very well, but it does in chapter, I mean, chapter 14 of Romans. A strong Christian is one whose conscience allows him to participate in a debatable issue and not sin. And so really that's who these Corinthians were thinking they were. They were strong in their conscience. They were strong in their beliefs of what they could and couldn't do in some of these issues. And so they were going forward into it. And so Paul is saying... He's saying how we, it's not that simple just to rest in your knowledge and to go out and act on it. You have to realize that there are people out there who might disagree, who see it differently, who will struggle if they participate in that. That's what chapter, verse 7 is saying. But then he says in verse 8, Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Uh, most commentators believe that Paul here is again summarizing what many of the Corinthians were boasting about. He's relaying some of their own sayings back to them. He says here, food will not, or they, they're saying, food will not commend us to God. It's not a big deal, they're saying. What the strong Christians or Corinthians were saying is that food really has no religious significance. It's just food. It's no big deal. And in a sense, Paul agrees with them because in Romans 14, 17, he says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but the righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's not a big deal. This is not what the kingdom is about, about what we eat, he says. And even the Corinthians themselves were saying, just in a couple of chapters earlier, in, in chapter 6, verse 13, where they say food is for the stomach and the stomach for food. The strong Corinthians were saying eating this meat is really nothing and were bewildered. They were bewildered as to why some people were having problems with it. They were really just saying, why don't you people just get over it? Indulge yourselves in your liberties. We are free to eat this meat offered to idols. It's a part of our culture. It's a part of our city. Our friends are involved in it. Our family members are involved in it. I want to be involved with it because I want to maintain those relationships. So why can't you just get over it and join in? Have fun. After all, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. We don't gain or lose anything with God over this issue. It's a non-moral issue. But, Paul says in verse 9, But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. You can feel a little disdain coming out in the Apostle Paul because here he uses a very strong adversative again in verse 9 that although he agrees with the general sentiment of their quotation in verse 8, he rejects the context in which it is being used. He says, but take care that this right of yours. Do you hear the disdain in him as they were just going about and just throwing out their rights and saying, I have the freedom to do whatever I want to and I'm going to do it. 
because the Lord has set us free. And there's, he's saying, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And now we're beginning to get to the issue at hand. What does it mean to be a, have a stumbling block? It's an, in the Greek, it means an obstacle put in the way in which one, if one strikes his foot against, he stumbles or falls. It's literally something where you're walking along and you hit your foot on it and you go to the ground. You go to the ground and there's damage that, that comes from it. And so Paul says very clearly, he says, we need to honor the weak, those with the weak conscience. We need to take care that this so-called right of yours, and he's not disagreeing that it's not a right. It is a right. This is not an issue where, where is sin is involved or not sin is involved as far as the issue itself. He's saying this right of yours, take care that it does not become a stumbling block to the weak. That's what they were missing. They were not, they were ignoring everybody around them. They figured everybody has this knowledge. Why don't you just come along and join in the fun with us? And you'll see how much fun it actually is. And then Paul begins to go on and explaining in verses 10 and 11. For if anyone sees you, who have knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? Now we're beginning to get to the crux of the matter of why Paul is bringing this up. This is what's actually happening. This is what, what's going on. Why are these strong Corinthians wrong? What's wrong with what they're doing? What is the danger? He says, Paul, Paul says here, the danger is, is that the weak brother is go, it could potentially be encouraged to violate his conscience. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? Here's a brother who, who, who's come out of that life. He's been converted. He's, he's off on his, on his walk with the Lord, and the Lord is beginning to... Uh, to reveal things to him, his sins, and he's turning from his former activities, the things that were clearly sinful, the idol worship, the false worship that he was involved in in his life. He's turning from these things, and so he's going good. And now, if he was to even begin to think about going back and participating in any of those activities that he was formerly involved in, do you see the danger involved for him? It's like a drug addict. If he's been released from drugs... You know, the first thing you don't want to do is give him a bag of drugs because one little sniff of it, in some cases, will send a person right back into full-fledged addiction to drugs. And so we have to realize that the danger is there, and Paul is laying it out there very clearly. He says in Romans chapter 14, But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. This is verse 23. Because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This gives us a little bit clearer idea of why this was the problem, what the problem was. Because if this person, this weak brother, was to be encouraged to go sit down in an idol, idol's temple, with a lot, whether, whether it be with one of his brothers who has, thinks he has the freedom to do it or whether he sees somebody do it, and because of his example he goes and does it on his own, if he goes and does that and his conscience is the whole time screaming out to him saying, wrong, 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 this is sin, this is sin, and he goes against his conscience, Paul clearly tells us there that it will be sin. It will clearly be sin. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And so Paul here is telling them that you need to beware that you're not just 
There's, 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 not, there, there's danger involved even in these liberty issues that we have. In verse 11, he says, And so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Now he's beginning to get more strong with his language. What does it mean that is the, the, the weak person is destroyed? Well, it's actually in the present tense, so it really means is currently being destroyed. And so what he means is that spiritual harm is going to come to this brother. Because if he goes against his conscience and he goes against uh, the faith that he has, it is sin. And so the more that we do that, the more that we're going to do that. And so a little thing like this will turn into a big thing to when he begins to violate his conscience over the things that God has clearly said is wrong. It does not mean that he's going to be lost because, after all, he is a brother. But it does mean that he can, there is potential spiritual danger ahead and damage could come to him. And then in verse 12, Paul really begins to turn it up. He says, Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Whoa. Sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Many people believe that when we involve ourselves in these neutral issues, whatever they may be, and I'm not going to put out a list for you today because it would be my pet list if I do that. But we know these things that we're talking about, these things where, where, we have, where some Christians involve themselves in and some don't. And there has been great debate and disagreement over the years over Christian liberties and what the things we should and should not do. But one thing I think is clear a lot of times is that many people believe that when it comes to areas of liberty, there can be no sin involved. I think we believe that a lot of times, that when we involve ourselves in these issues where there is no thus saith the Lord, where it is not black and white, it's really a neutral issue and there can be no sin involved. But, but Paul is setting us straight very clearly here because he says, Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. That's very powerful. There is clear sin involved here. You sin against your brothers, and when you sin against your brothers and wound their conscience, you actually sin against Christ. How do we sin against Christ? Well, you remember in the story of the Apostle Paul when he was met by the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, and when he was on his way to throw Christians into prison and to persecute Christians, Christ came to him and threw him off his horse and blinded him. And what did he say to him? He says in uh, Acts chapter 9, verse 4 and 5, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And so in Paul, in his zealousness to, uh, to, to rid, the, the, rid the Jews of the influence of these Christians... He was persecuting them. He thought that he was doing a service to God in his zeal. But Christ meets him on the road to Damascus and tells him, you're persecuting me. You're sinning against me. Jesus taught us in the Gospels when he said, when you do uh, one of these services, when you go and uh, visit people in the prison, when you, when you do this to the least of my brethren, you do it unto me, either whether it's good or bad. If we sin against our brethren, we are sinning against Christ. And so we need to realize that these issues 
are not always so cut and dry and simple to think through. There is a great, a great amount at stake, and there is great potential for sin. And so that's the issue here. These strong Christians are, are participating in things that they feel free to do, and Paul says, in and of itself, the issue is there is freedom there, but the manner in which you're going about it is all wrong. There is sin involved. You're causing your weak brothers to stumble. You're causing these people to potentially go against their conscience and sin against their conscience, which is very dangerous. That's the issue. That and not something else. This is not talking about a person being put out by another person's Christian's exercise of freedom on some issue. This is not talking about a person being offended at some person's exercise of freedom. It does not have in view a situation where, say, a member of the Corinthian congregation came home one night and said to his wife, You know, I saw Bob and Jane on the way home from the marketplace just now, and I saw them coming out of the Apollo Temple. And apparently they have just finished up having dinner there. Can you believe it? It just really bothers me to see them there. I just don't think it's right. I mean, I know idols are nothing. I just think it's a terrible witness. I mean, I certainly would not do that sort of thing. We would never do that sort of thing. In fact, I think I'm going to see if I can't get in touch with the pastor to see if we can't come up with some kind of policy that rules this type of thing out. That's not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about Christians being put out by another person's activity on a neutral issue. He's talking about a Christian who is weak in faith, whose conscience is not quite as informed. There are things that he could be participating in. He has the freedom to do it, but he doesn't feel that freedom yet. He, has, he doesn't feel like he can experience that freedom yet. And if, he, and if he sees other Christians being involved in these things, he might be emboldened to go against his conscience and thus be destroyed by following that. That's what he's talking about, but he's not talking about someone who, who is firm in their convictions that certain things are wrong and they're not going to be emboldened to go do these things. They just don't think it's right. That's not what he's talking about here. There is instruction for that in Romans 14 a lot more clearly for us. And I'm sure that sort of thing was happening in Corinth. It happens all the time. But that's not the thing that this passage is talking about. As Gordon Fee says in his commentary, on 1 Corinthians, the issue is not merely offending someone. It has to do with conduct that another person would emulate. And in so doing, they would ignore conscience. And as Martin Luther said, to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. And so that's what Paul's dealing with there. That's what he's talking about here. He's trying to wake these Christians up, these people who are indulging in these activities. He's going to set, he's really going to set them straight in chapter 10. But for now, he's trying to get them and wake them up and see, look at your brothers around you. You have a, you have a, you have a duty to them. You have to watch out for them. You need to serve them. And so Paul begins to lead the way by example in verse 13. He says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Now, Paul had knowledge. Paul's conscience was very well informed. He had the right kind of knowledge. The kind that Paul had, though, made his liberty subordinate to love. That's the kind of knowledge we all need. The kind of knowledge that puts our liberties underneath love and subordinate to love. The kind that puts others and Christ first before ourselves 
It doesn't focus on our rights, but it focuses on serving others. And Paul says something very, very dramatic here. He says, I will never eat meat again. That literally means into eternity. He's saying that if one of these issues, if this, if this is an issue for somebody of not whether or not I should eat this meat, I will deprive myself until I die. If it means helping another brother or not making another brother stumble. And we've seen this type of thing very clearly in the book of Philippians as Paul is talking about Christ and how He set aside His rights. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's the example of humility that our Savior has set before us. Did he, turn, did he give up his rights? He absolutely did. He gave up the glories of heaven. He left heaven and take, took on the form of a man, John 1 says he was God who took on flesh and dwelt among us and he was rejected by men. He gave up the glories of heaven to come down here to be persecuted, to be killed for our sin. And so that is, that is our example of how to give up our rights to the nth degree as Christ did. Did he have the right to say, I would like to stay in heaven, Father. I do not want to be separated from you. Yes, He did. But He did not do that. Because of the love of the Father and because of the love of the Son and the Spirit, they did not do that. And so that is what Paul is laying out for them very clearly here in, this, in these verses. Is that when we do these things, when we, in, when we participate in these activities in our life and these things that... that, that that, that fall in these categories where they're a little gray and we don't have, we don't have a thus saith the Lord that it's right or wrong. We need to realize that we, we can't just up and do the things that we, without any thought whatsoever. It's not that simple. People struggle with different things and we have a responsibility to one another. We have a duty and a responsibility to one another not to cause each other to stumble because we are serving one another. And I have a few observations I want to make in closing, and then we'll be through. The first, if what I call knowledge doesn't consider others, then my knowledge is deficient. When I am more concerned for my rights than I am serving others, then my perspective is wrong and my knowledge is deficient. That's what Paul, that's what Paul is telling them here. They had knowledge. He's not saying the things that they understood were wrong. They were right. There is no other gods. There are, these idols are nothing. The meat that you're eating, it's meat. There's nothing wrong with it. But it's not that simple. Because it was something for some people. 
just being associated. Some people associate some things with evil because of their former association. And so he's saying you can't just stop at your knowledge. You have to go further and you have to put it subservient to love. We cannot exalt our rights. That's, I mean, listen, we get indoctrinated in that all the time because we're Americans, right? We have rights. We have rights. We have rights that have been given to us by our Creator as Americans. Let that not be the mantra that you operate under because it's not biblical. Yes, we have been given great blessings by our Creator as a nation. But we cannot just go through and indulge ourselves in these things without any thought whatsoever to how they affect others. That is not biblical and it's not Christian. Second, accurate information can be used in sinful ways. These people had accurate information, as I just said. It, but, it, but it was being used in sinful ways. They, were using some, they could be potentially be using it to excuse sin in my own life. Or maybe we could be using it to, ex, to excuse sin against other people. Maybe I just like to indulge in some things because I have a sinful attraction to it. It's an idol to me. I can't do without it. We have to be leery of these things. My third observation I am fearful to enter into because there is great potential for being misunderstood and maybe even becoming upset with me, but I'm going to enter into it anyway. We, we can celebrate that we, are, we have a tremendous amount of advantages in our day in sharing information, especially over the Internet. We have media outlets like MySpace, YouTube, Facebook. They allow us to connect to people in ways that previous generations never could. We can, we can know people from our past. We can be reconnected with people in ways that previous generations never were able to do. There are thing, great things that happen on these. And I want to talk to you primarily about Facebook because that's the one that I primarily know about because I'm on it. And I'm not going to say that these things are wrong. These things are bad. Again, this is an, this, this, it's, it's an Internet site. Okay? It has no good or bad morally. It's just neutral. It's a media outlet. But for all the good that can be accomplished on it, there is also the potential for great damage that can come from being involved in these things. We have to realize that especially when it comes to areas of liberty. And that's why I primarily want to focus on this. I'm not going to go into it in detail about some of the other things that we may or may not see on Facebook particularly. But in the areas of liberty, I think that's why I was burdened to talk about this because I see the potential for for, for great harm here. There is great potential for good. Today's my birthday, and I've already got several happy birthday from several of you on Facebook. So... I know that there's great potential for encouragement and great potential for for connecting with people there. But the danger comes, I think, whenever we, in some of these issues, put it out there for the world to see. I want to give you an example of one I thought, and I thought about this one because I have not seen it, so I didn't want to come up with an example that some of you may or may not have done. 
But let's just say I'm going to have a wine and cheese eating party at my house tomorrow night. I don't think, I have not seen that where anybody has said I'm going to have a wine and cheese eating party. And I just put it out there on Facebook for everybody to see. Well, what happens when one of the Christians who, who either I serve or who knows I'm a pastor says, well, well, Pastor Soap Steve is over there drinking wine and having uh, cheese. I guess cheese is cheese. But, <laughs> but drinking wine in his house. Do you see the potential for causing a brother to stumble? Do you see the potential for putting a stumbling block in somebody? I'm not right. I'm not wrong in having a wine and cheese eating party at my house. If I want to invo- invite some friends over to my house who have no problem with that, I have the freedom to do that, and we all have the freedom to do that, and I think the Lord would be pleased with the fellowship that happens from it. But why, is that this, why do we have to, to put this out for the whole world to see? What is the purpose in that? I'm not saying we need to stop doing this completely. I'm just saying, think about what you put out there. Think about the dangers that can come from the things that we say. Okay? Think about those things. Think about your brothers and sisters out there. What will people think about the things I'm about to say? I mean, really, I mean, it has to be the worst idea in the history of bad ideas for people to ask, what's on your mind today? You know, I'm glad I don't answer that question every day because there are some things on my mind I should not put on Facebook. But nonetheless, you get what I'm saying. I'm not saying get off Facebook. I have... I looked today, I wrote it down, I have 149 friends on Facebook, and I don't want to see that number go down because, of, because y'all are going to start to, removing me as a friend. I'll track you down and I'll put your name on my wall saying that you took me off. <laughs> but do you see what I'm saying? Just be weary of what we put out there. We have the freedom to do these things. And Paul says in Romans 14.22, The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Do you see what he's saying there? You're blessed. If you have the freedom to do these things and you feel like you can do those things, blessed are you. Participate in those things. Have the freedom to do these things. Enjoy all things. They come from God. Things that aren't sinful, they come from God. Enjoy them. But be careful. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. I'm not saying we've got to walk around and cover ourselves all the time where people might see us do something that they don't like. That's, that's not what Paul's talking about here in chapter 8. That's, a legalist, that's legalism. And we might get into that a little bit later. But, but nonetheless, be aware of that people are out there and they're watching. We're, we're watching one another. And we need to ask ourselves, will this cause someone to stumble? And then finally, stay out of the ditches of legalism and license and stay on the gospel highway. The gospel highway has two ditches on either side. They call legalism and license. Legalism says everything is black and white, and all I need I need a list of do's and don'ts, and these are what I do, and this is what I don't do, and this and I want to enforce that on everyone else. The classic examples of those were the Pharisees. They were legalists, and Jesus went out of his way to offend them in their legalism. The other ditch is license. These are the people who also. They don't, they don't see any gray areas either. They just think everything's white. Everything's up. Everything's available. We can do anything we want. No thought whatsoever. I'll indulge in anything I want to do, and I don't care if anybody stumbles over it or not. That's license. Both of them are anti-gospel. Both of them are deadly. 
The center, the sweet spot in the middle that we walk on is the gospel highway. Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Christ has set us free. We are free. Stand firm. Don't let anybody tell you you're not free. Don't let anybody put you back into a bondage of slavery. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. But then he says in verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. That's the gospel. Christ set aside the glories of heaven to come and to rescue us and to redeem us and to reconcile us to God. We are not on this earth to enjoy the pleasures of earth solely. That's not why we're here. We can enjoy those things. But if that cannot be our only focus, and if we are exalting ourselves above, above others, we, are, we don't understand the gospel. And so we have, to be, we have to continuously preach the gospel to ourselves and tell ourselves over and over and over that God has redeemed me. If anybody should not be redeemed, it's me. But nonetheless, He set aside the glories of heaven to come to serve me. And so we have that same mandate to live in and walk in. We're not here to serve ourselves. We're here to serve others. Let that be the mantra of Ephesus Church, that we are not here to serve ourselves, but we are here to serve others and to look out for others above ourselves. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, God, that You have given us the freedom, Lord, that we enjoy in the Gospel. We ask that You would continuously inform us and to grow us in our knowledge and understanding of these things. And, Father, help us most importantly to love each other in the midst of these difficult issues that we deal with. They're very difficult. They they, They demand great wisdom. And we know, God, that You have told us to ask for wisdom and You give it. And so, Father, we ask that You would give us wisdom to understand these issues more clearly. I pray, God, for those whose consciences are struggling with issues, that You will grow them, Father, that that You would grow them to better understanding of their freedoms so that they are not put under a yoke or a bondage of uh, of slavery. And, Father, I pray that You would help us to always look for the person who could go against their conscience. God, give us, let our hearts break over that reality. And let us watch out for one another, Father, as we go through this world, to hold one another up, to walk down the gospel highway, to serve one another for your kingdom and for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.